Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And welcome to a very special edition of Lost in Science. It is the Lost in Science Fiction edition of Lost in Science this week. Thanks for joining us. My name is Claire and it's Halloween. It is. Well, it's a lead up to Halloween, isn't it? it it's around halloween It's close enough. Yeah. It is Halloween-esque. It is, yeah. it is that time of year anyway. The time of year where we take some of our favourite science fiction films and we dissect them and make them not fun anymore. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> is anything we're good at is making things not fun. <laughs> that is, is that our sole purpose? No. 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 no we take a, a good look at the science fiction films and we look at the science behind them. Exactly. Or lack thereof. And today on the show, I'm going to be looking at a movie that is 45 years old called Soylent Green. <gasps> and there is a secret of Soylent Green. I'm going to talk about that secret and why some startup Silicon Valley types in, the, in California have decided to name their product Soylent. Stu, what do you have for us? Well, if you're going to be talking about a 45-year-old movie, I'm going to have to one-up you there <gasps> and talk about a 50-year-old movie. Love it. Yeah, one of my favourite all-time science fiction films is 2001, A Space Odyssey. Woohoo! It is a classic and it's an epic and it's a very confusing ending. You know, it's sort of a confusing starting as well. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> it's, it's kind of there's, – there's about three movies rolled into there, maybe yes. even four to be honest – but it is also really amazingly influential and had huge effects on real-world technology and all sorts of things. I'm going to talk a little bit about that. And Chris, what do you have for us today? Well, I I am going to take concept to this episode and just tear movies apart. But in particular... Tear them I, apart with your tiny little... Uh, yes. I'm going to be picking on, well, mostly Four Jurassic wins. Park, but other movies. Just that common trope in a lot of science fiction movies where the monsters... They can't get you if you don't move. They don't know you're there if you don't move. Oh, classic oh, you T-Rex. Just, you stay still. Yeah, and you they, stay still. And they, and they just walk past. Yeah, that's right. I right. think it's a, it's a fairly common one. I see it a lot in, in Doctor Who. Um, and it, it bugs me. So I want to find out, is that realistic? You know, could the T-Rex detect you? And do are there animals that only detect you if you move? And should you be worried about them? Well, I'm looking forward to knowing what I should do when I um, encounter a T-Rex at the end of that laneway some fateful night in the future. <laughs> On with the show. So I'm taking us back to a movie that asks the question, what is the secret of Soylent Green. Can we just say it? Yeah. It's what? people. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> didn't, didn't wait long there, did you? Didn't wait long. Okay, all right. Let me give you a rundown of the film Soylent Green, starring everyone's favourite favorite gun Rabid lover, NRA. Charlton Heston. Stu's already spoiled it, but yes, yeah, spo- more spoilers ahead. So it's 2022, which is only four, four years. years away. And industrialization has resulted in overpopulation, pollution, and global warming due to the greenhouse effect. This all sounds unlikely to me. It all sounds fairly uh, 
denial over there. Well, okay, so there are 40 million people living in New York City and wow. everyone is scraping by on rations produced by the Soylent Corporation. And their latest product is Soylent Green, a green wafer that contains high-energy plankton because that's the only thing that will grow anymore, plankton. Apparently it's plankton. That's what I they're think, telling them anyway. And isn't it isn't it suggested that they were Soylent because they were using soy, yeah, soy and, lentils and lentils to begin yes. with, but then they couldn't get them to grow anymore, so uh-huh. now they're onto the plankton. Now they're onto the plankton, mm. yeah. Um, enter Charlton Heston as a hardball detective on the case of a mysterious murder of a board member from this Soylent Corporation. Charlton enlists the help of an elderly detective to start investigating and what they uncover is that soil and green is not made from high energy plankton at all. In fact, there are no plankton left in the oceans. <gasps> <laughs> Scandal. That's a big shock. Yeah, it is a shock. Meanwhile, um, the haggard old detective finds out that soil and green is potentially made from human remains. He was one day away from retirement, I'm sure. Which. <laughs> Which is the the only known protein and is so disgusted with the situation, he checks himself into an assisted death clinic. Oh, what? Yeah. Um, So isn't this, there's suicide booths in this film, isn't there? So he he checks himself in to this suicide, it's not a booth, it's more like a clinic. You're thinking Futurama. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. I am. And they ask him a whole lot of questions about what he likes, and then he gets to trip out on imagining green forests and extinct animals and all the nature that he hasn't seen in years um, and dies. Meanwhile, Charlton Heston jumps on a, on a truck carrying all the euthanized bodies mm-hmm. all the way to the Soylent Green factory, and he witnesses the dead bodies on a conveyor belt being turned into Soylent Green. Including his former colleague? Including his former colleague. You are basically telling us the whole movie here, yeah. <laughs> at which Spoilers. Point, at which point he screams. <laughs> Soylent Green is people. Yeah. Nice acting there, Stu. Nice, yeah, nice screaming there, Stu. Yeah. I'm not going to scream. All right. So let's divide the science fact from the science fiction. <laughs> now, first of all, it's only five years away. Yeah, but to be fair, 2001 was 17 years ago. That's true. That's true. But we already, you know, we've already encountered aliens. And, yeah, I, was, um, I, was, yeah, I, was, I went to the moon the other week yeah, exactly. on the business. <laughs> so overpopulation, the greenhouse effect, overfishing, um, this is all, these are all very current issues. You know, it's not total environmental degradation. We're not eating ourselves or each other yet. Yeah, and New York is very different to what it was in the 1970s. Yeah. Yes, yes. So for some context, this film came out around the same time as Rachel Carson's Silent Spring, which kick-started the environmental movement. And it was also not long after the founding of the Environmental Protection Agency. So there was the signing of the Clean Air Act, which meant that urban air um, used to be a lot more polluted than it is nowadays. So, mm. you know, it was much more of an issue back yep, then yep. than it Acid is Acid rain and stuff was like a big concern, all those kind of things. That's right. But obviously the most fascinating part of the film is the idea of the state turning us all into cannibals, um, which is pretty um, terrifying. But if you think about the ecosystem food pyramid, you've got the primary producers on the bottom yep. and then you've got, you know, then the vegetarians, yep. you know, and then yep. all the yep. way up okay. to okay. probably humans at the top. Um, so it doesn't really work um, when you think about it And like you basically, this. you lose energy at every 
level up you go every trophic level you go up you lose some energy so you pay you can't sustain a population feeding on themselves. No, but it is a good way to deal with overpopulation. Well, possibly. <laughs> possibly. So humans are warm-blooded. Uh, we maintain our body temperature by moving around. Um, and we, But we end up spending so much of our energy on maintaining our body temperature that very little goes into producing biomass. Mm. So, And we're very slow-growing and, you know, very inefficient um, from an energy perspective. So we're probably a bad choice in terms of a sustainable food supply. But if um, it's all you got. But if it's all you've got, and it it would solve overpopulation in a pretty short amount of time because people as calories can support so few other people that everyone would just die off very, very quickly. Mm-hmm. Anyway, this this whole idea of soil and green hasn't stopped a California startup company developing and marketing a product that they have named Soylent. This is a supposed to be a total full meal supplement, so something that you're supposed to eat for breakfast, lunch, and dinner as a replacement for your meals. Soylent. You just add water to this powder and then you drink it. What so colour is it? It's like a grey... Green? No, it's 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 more of a beige. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Sort of beige. Yeah. Um. So its ingredients, <laughs> beige. Its ingredients include water, like maltodextrin, mm. soy protein, oil, rice starch. Does it have lentils in it? No, it doesn't. <laughs> but it does have human remains. It no. does. Okay. No, it doesn't have human <laughs> remains. That was just a joke. But yeah, soylent. It was developed by a software engineer who just wanted to drink something at his desk while he coded all day and all night. And peed in the cup. And he, wa- and he wanted to be as efficient and environmentally conscious as possible. So surely keeping the human population down is probably one of the best ways to be uh, both efficient and sustainable at the same time. So who knows what the future holds for Soylent Beige. Listen to me, Hatcher. You gotta tell them, silent breed is people! We've gotta stop them somehow! You're listening to Lost in Science, and as I said before, I am talking about those movie monsters, particularly certain dinosaurs, that can't see you if you don't move. Now, I think, actually, this is kind of, it's a good trope because it's sort of that, that childhood fear, you know, when you're hiding in the bed, and yeah, and if you hide under you. the covers, the monsters can't get you because they can't see you. Which, spoiler alert, they did in, I think, the latest Jurassic World movie. Spoiler alert? I haven't yeah. seen that, that oh, one. Okay, oh, sorry. Came get out a wriggle on. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, the question is, is this realistic? Does this actually happen in the real world? Well, look, now we can't say for certain how T-Rexes worked, how they hunted, how their eyes worked. There are some thoughts about that, but before I get to that, let's look at some existing animals to see if this is a thing that happens in the animal kingdom, sure. as it were. So we've got to assume that we're talking about animals that have eyes. Yeah. And, and you know, can see normally. Yeah, we're talking and about, around and we're talking about predators things. in yeah. particular. Yeah. yeah. Now, um, well, let's, let, let, yeah, there's some obvious things to point out here. Yes, definitely things moving make them easier to see. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we all know, we, we, we live in the world when things move, they're kind of easy to see. And when you think about camouflage, like if you are pretending to be part of a tree, for instance, helps to not move. So, you yeah. know, it's not moving is a strategy of hiding, clearly. But are there animals that can only see movement? 
Okay, so there are some documented studies on the common toad, Bufo Bufo. This is where seems to be a lot of this has come from. Um, this is measuring their sensitivity to movement. So frogs and toads will mostly pick on moving things. Now, there's a German scientist, Jörg Peter Evert, who studied um, the looks of the neurons inside the toad's brain and found that certain neurons fired when a target is moving like a worm or something that toads eat. Um, and supposedly this is because the toads have fixed eyes. So for like humans and many, many other animals, we, our eyes do something called saccades, where they're constantly darting around and scanning the environment. This is so we can focus on, we can you know, see the whole kind of world that we're looking at. Whereas mm-hmm. toads, their eyes are more fixed. They can't do this. So they need to turn their head and focus on something. So they need to be able to detect movement quickly so that they can focus on it and identify it and narrow in it. Um, so yeah, they're not exactly... Can't say they're blind to things that don't move. They just rely a lot on movement to detect their prey. Um, now we can't say whether T. Rexes had a similar kind of thing. Well, in Jurassic Park, didn't they recombine the dino DNA with the with the frog amphibious DNA? Look, there's perhaps a get out there. Um, I'm going to say that is that is stretching a bit um, because again, the fro- togs, frogs and toads weren't totally blind to things not moving. But also, you know, T-Rexes, they had, their skull shape seems to give them a really good field of vision. They look like they were designed for eyes. Plus, they had other senses as well. Like, they had large olfactory bulbs in their brain. So they probably had a very good sense of smell. And this, so they could smell you before they see you. Yeah, and this is one of the key points about predators. Like, if you're a predator, then you evolve what you need to hunt. Yeah. You know, you're not going to just suddenly lose your eyesight because you kind of need that to hunt. Uh, most of them have, do have good eyesight. Even those that hunt in the dark have good eyesight. Like lions, for instance, they will often hunt at night. And the reason they do that is not, uh, well, it's mostly because their prey can't see them. You know, they're, they're basically using their advantage to be able to see better at night to be able to hunt things that don't see as well. There is a school of thought around T-Rexes that they weren't actually predators, but they were scavengers. They were just big big scavengers and that's why they have such a developed olfactory brain part so they could smell a dead animal yeah from so they a could smell a dead animal from way off well i'm i know there is some debate about that i'm, I'm actually going to come back to that because i want to look at another animal that hunts at night um namely the owl okay so barn owls like the taito alba can actually hunt in pitch blackness these experiments have been done um, and they just use sound to hunt um, the, they actually have their their left ear hole is higher up than their right. So you know how like we can detect using our stereo binaural hearing, we can detect, you know, where Direction. things are. Yeah. yeah. By having one ear hole higher than the other, they can actually detect in a vertical plane as well. Oh, so they've got like three dimensional directional <gasps> detection. Wow. They they do, wow. they do. We have to tilt our heads to do the same thing. Whew, what a, what an what a hassle. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but, you know, the owls also have really good eyesight and, they, you know, they will use both sight and sound when they're available. You know, again, you know, they will use what they need to find things. What they, I believe they don't have very good is the sense of smell because when you are trying to find a small mouse from like, you know, a few hundred metres away... You don't need it. Smell is not going to be very useful if your strategy is basically go really fast and pounce on it. Smell is not going to help you. Um, vultures, though, are a bird that does have a good sense of smell, and they are scavengers. They can smell the dead things. Maybe the T-Rex was like the vulture. Mm. Maybe that's one of the theories for that. Um, but anyway, yeah, so this, but this all prompted me to wonder, are there any animals that do only use sound? Like, for instance, another movie, A Quiet Place. Have you seen that one? No. no. It was a scary movie came out that is um, directed by and starring Jim from The Office. No? <laughs> oh, okay. John Krasinski. Well, um, so, okay. So 
these were like aliens that could only detect sound. They had incredibly good hearing, so they had to be completely quiet. It's actually a very tense movie to watch because most of the movie is very quiet. And oh, anyone yeah. rustling, okay. there's some kids in the row in front of me who are rustling their chips bags. And, oh, they're annoying. Anyway. <laughs> so, okay. But on Earth... You mostly find blind animals in places where there is no light. So like in caves or at the bottom of the ocean. Um, now these are, some of these of course are predators, but their prey is also blind. So it's basically the even, even ground. So I guess if one of these creatures came to the surface or maybe they came from another planet where there was very little light, you know, perhaps they would be like these monsters. But it's actually a fairly rare thing. But, you know, just looking at these these blind predators... I want to give a bit of a shout out to the um to the my favourite the star nosed mole. Mm-hmm. Have you heard of the star nosed mole? Yeah, um, Condylura cristata. It's a small North American mole that has like this fleshy tendrils on yeah. its nose. Yeah, looks like a star. Yeah, yeah. Twenty two tendrils. Twenty two pink fleshy appendages. <laughs> and they like they're constantly twitching and scanning mm. its environment. And um, when they when they touch something, it reacts and grabs like something that might be edible. Apparently, they can react in about eight milliseconds, which the Guinness World Record, Guinness Book of Records, gave them the prize for the fastest forager. Wow! What do they do when they touch it? What they grab it with their tendrils? I think or? they just, I don't know, with their mouth or something. It's very close to their mouth. It is very, it's very close, close yeah. to their yeah. mouth. Yeah. So apparently, they're they're because you know there's part of the brain is used for essentially for, for touch sensing. They have like a very enlarged part of the brain for touch sensors, much like we have an enlarged lobe for vision. They've got a similar kind of thing for touch. So it shows how the brain adapts to whatever sensors you're using. Anyway, T. Rexes weren't like star-nosed <laughs> moles. I guess is what I'm saying. So look, what I'm saying is it's it is possible for some animals to only respond to sound or to movement, but it's it's quite rare in nature. Um, so I think it's unlikely in the T. Rex, and I don't think it should be such a common trope necessarily in monsters across the whole sci-fi multiverse. Hey, 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 hey! Dan, freeze! One of my all-time favourite science fiction movies turns 50 this year, which is slightly older than me, Uh, and I think it stands as one of the better hard science fiction movies in history, uh, but also one of the most influential, and I'm talking about 2001, A Space Odyssey. Um, Stanley Kubrick, you probably Mm -hmm. heard the name, um, pretty visionary director, um, and made a whole lot of interesting sort of groundbreaking films in various genres. He didn't sort of stick to sci-fi. Mm, he was all shining, over the, all over the place. Um, this was jacket. quite an early film for him though. In uh, his in his in his catalogue. Yeah, yeah, in his career. Um he actually did a lot of technical pioneering in filmmaking mm. too. He developed special lenses, for example, that allowed him to shoot scenes in uh the low light of candles. So he made a film called Barry Lyndon and he wanted to be able to film by candlelight and there was no such lens in the world, so he just invented one. And to, he also uh, filmed this film in 70mm film, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is much, much wider than, than you would normally uh, see on film. It was Absolutely. Like- it was, yeah, it was really high standard. But, you know, that's because he wanted to make it look amazing. So he wrote a letter to science fiction writer Arthur C. Clarke after discovering they had a mutual friend. Supposedly they were talking about telescopes 
and he used that as an excuse to Love write that. Arthur C. Clarke a Love letter. Um, and he he proposed collaborating on a screenplay for what he called, what Kubrick called, the proverbial really good science fiction movie, which he insisted had never been made. And to be fair, there was a lot of... Yeah, if you look at the predecessors, I think, you know, I think, was it that same year or the year before was like Forbidden Planet, yeah, which is like a kind of a hokey looking thing with a guy and a robot going, ah. Um, but yeah, a lot of that sort of 1950s stuff. Very kitsch, very yeah. like... Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And he just didn't want to do that. Um, so the film itself is fantastical in a lot of ways. Uh, the discovery of alien artifacts and the suggestion that Homo sapiens were influenced by alien intelligence are basically pure fiction. There's no real reason to believe any of that sort of thing. But the rest of the film, the actual look of the film and the way it's presented sticks to what was at the time pretty good science mm. uh, in a lot of ways. So film starts with early man in the desert banging on bones and then in the in the background – it's just a bunch of tape ears. There's just tape ears everywhere. It's yeah. Just, and and, a, is and that, a, is uh, that true to, uh, and true a, to uh, fact? A lot of tape ears in those days. A lot of tape ears. And, and some kind of wildcat. That's pretty much it. That's the, whole, that's the whole wildlife of that part of Africa. So, look, the idea that aliens have visited Earth is the stuff of many more low-budget invasion movies, both before and after 2001 was released. But the response of the scientists who make the discovery is pretty rational. They don't panic and they don't sort of get the army out or anything like that. They're really curious. And though in the film version of the year 2001, the Cold War is still going on. So this film was made in 1968. So it was pretty tense at the time. Um, But in the film year of 2001, the Cold War is still going on. So there's still sort of some tension. The the, The Russian scientists are sort of suspicious of what the American scientists have discovered and all this sort of thing. But the lasting influence of the film itself is not just in cinema. Obviously, if you look at the special effects in this film, they were groundbreaking. They pretty much influenced every sci-fi movie that came after it. There was a lot of uh, realism Mm. which had been lacking. There was also like, a lot of good treatment of the whole issue of gravity and weightlessness, which you still don't get today in many science fiction films. Yeah, well, that's it. If you look at something like Star Trek, they just walk around in deep space just as if they've got normal Earth gravity. Yeah. Um, and they've got some in-story explanation for that, but it doesn't really make a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah. Even that movie um, where they had to restart the sun, what was that one called? Uh, Sunshine. Sunshine, yeah. And apparently they had, like, physics consultants on that, and they talked about doing a, you know, proper anti-gravity, but the filmmakers went, ah, too hard. It's just anti-gravity. It's just like artificial gravity when you're inside the spaceship. Whereas, yeah, in in, uh, 2001 they have this, um, the ship has got a spinning section which Mm. allows them to have centrifugal or centripetal force, I guess it is, making them be able to run around. It's a really amazing shot, too, mm. when he's running, doing doing his jogging. And, look, up until CGI became the most common way to make spaceships, this model-making sort of stuff that they kind of pioneered in 2001 was everywhere after this film came out. Do you remember the scene in 2001 where the scientist is on the flight to the moon and he lets go of his pen and then the pen just flo- like floats in air? Yeah. Do you know how they got that shot? Yeah, I think they stuck the pen to a piece of piece plastic. Piece of glass. Yeah. And then like moved it around like that in three dimensions so it looked like... Woo. <laughs> so but it I mean, like, you know... And it looked wow. incredible. How did they do the space baby? 
<laughs> well, they got this real baby and they stuck it to a sheet of glass. The interesting thing is that there was there's only a very limited number of special effects in 2001 compared to stuff like Star Wars, which came out mm. almost 10 years later, which had hundreds more special effects thrown in. Although I have to admit, when I upgraded my old DVD copy to a new Blu-ray version, some of the sets in the early part of the film do look a lot more stagey <laughs> on on the high definition. Yeah. That's on you, Stu. Uh, well, yeah, look, maybe I was just a, a, you know watching it on an old VHS tape at one point or something like that. How do the ape costumes hold up? No, they're still pretty good. But the technology in the film itself also had an influence on the real world in a number of ways um, by introducing concepts that kind of hadn't been thought about before. So... The tablet computer revolution has ties to devices used in this film. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was that uh, the film was even mentioned in court when Apple tried to claim that they invented the tablet computer. They had, they had invented the iPad. And the people that they were trying to prevent from making their own tablets said, yeah, well, we watched this movie in 1968 and that's where we got the idea from, not from your machine. Obviously... <laughs> Obviously, the the ones in the film didn't work. They were just props. So, mm. you know, to to make an actual working one is is a bit of a jump in technology. But, you know, the, the concept itself is what made people think of doing this in the first place. Um, another idea that caught people's imagination was the idea of artificial intelligence. In the film, it's represented by a supercomputer who accompanies the astronauts on their mission to Jupiter and basically controls all of the functions of their ship. Um, So if you kind of think of that in terms of AI helpers like Apple Siri Mm. or Samsung has one called Bixby and there's a bunch of other different ones. Alexa is another one. Cortana. But they're all influenced by by Hal's manner in the film. And if you actually, if you ask Siri to open the pod bay doors, she responds that she can't do that. But yeah, so the, you know, the idea that the, uh, the, AI can actually take everything over is a bit crazy. The, the, the laws of robotics and that sort of thing, you can't really um, confuse an AI to the point where it'll go on a murderous binge. Yeah, but there's like an alien artifact out there. Who knows? All, all, well, that, all... Is, that is true. Um, and, you know, Hal was putting the mission before the astronauts, right? He was that's putting right. the mission yeah, first. That's, uh, yeah, that's – yeah. So it was it, like a programming error. Yeah. Well, he was – yeah, he was supposedly given conflicting instructions. Although it is tricky to figure that out from just watching the film, <laughs> I've got to say. Now, in terms of real space travel, the use of AI and robotics has probably moved away from human-led missions to other planets. We don't tend to chuck people in rockets and shoot them off into various directions. We send robots instead. So the chances of you know having your astronaut crew killed by the robot is pretty slim if there's no humans on board to begin with. But I think probably the main influence of the film is in inspiring people to get interested in space travel and science and all of those sorts of things. The um, the Odyssey mission to Mars was named for this film and it was launched in 2001 and went into orbit around Mars in 2001 and it's still there. So, you know, that's sort of all the people who were working on that got together and said, hey, let's call it Odyssey because in honour of this movie. Um, but I think, you know, we're still a way off having space hotels and moon bases, but the parts of the film that have come true are in some ways so familiar we probably don't even notice them anymore. Mm. 
That's all we have time for on our special edition of Lost in Science Fiction. Thank you for joining us. Lost in Science is recorded in the studios of 3CR and broadcast around Australia on the Community Radio Network. Please get in touch with us on email at lostinsight.gmail.com. Find us on Twitter. We're on Facebook as well. Or tune in again next week when we get Lost in Science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.